0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR, 102.7. This is your weekly dose of film criticism. I'm Josh Nelson and I'm joined in the cave this week by...
1: Hi, I'm Alexandra Helen Helenicholas. <laughs> And I'm not Thomas Caldwell.
0: (laughs) No, you're not. You are a little jet-lagged, though, I I hear. Sure. You doing all right? I'm, yeah, look,
2: it's going to be a bit touch and go this evening. I won't sugarcoat things for you. Touch it's, uh... and
1: go with the fabulous Cerise Howland. Ah. You can have your own show called Touch and Go.
0: Hey, um, Thomas Caldwell isn't in the cave this week. He's taking a sabbatical. He's disappeared into the maelstrom of myth. We've sent out a rescue party. Um, they've told us it'll probably be three weeks, but he'll be back in time for Radiothon, so that's good. Okay, let's get on with tonight's show. If tonight's show was brought to you by Sesame Street... It'd be brought to you by the letter B. There are lots of Bs in tonight's show, and that's about the best I could come up with. So, later on tonight, we are going to look at a new documentary about Sesame Street stalwart Carol Spinney in the documentary I Am Big Bird. And later on tonight, we'll be looking at the 1975 cult anthology film Trilogy of Terror, starring a triple dose of... Of Karen Black in all her psychosexual glory. But before we get onto those, let's take a look at a recent Franco German release of the classic tale Beauty and the Beast.
2: Yes, if we must, Josh. Uh, Beauty and the Beast from director Christophe Gans, who had a huge hit back in two thousand and one with what, for French cinema, is a big budget film, Brotherhood of the Wolf, and all was silent for a few years. Returned with some sort of video game adaptation, Silent Hill, in two thousand and six, and then many years of silence. Subsequently, at least as far as feature films are concerned, maybe he shouldn't have returned to the cinema. Is that a bit too soon? Spoilers: I did not like this film. Uh, uh, never mind that I am in the thick of the Vincent Cassel fan club here, um, so I'm possibly on a hiding to nothing from at least one of my <laughs>
1: esteemed colleagues. I have no idea what you mean.
2: Yeah. And, uh, good grief, this film was dire. Look, I, I, I think the most interesting thing to discuss, actually, is the, about this film, because there's, there's a precious little point uh, going over the plot. It's all rather time-worn. There's barely any deviation, as far as I'm aware of, of a, at all, from the, the very familiar Beauty and the Beast story. But I suppose if we need go over it at all, it's the 19th century, fairly early on in the piece. A merchant has lost a fortune at sea. He has lots of children. Things can't be that grim because he can still retire to a fairly nice countryside retreat. Uh, some of the children are pretty rubbish, but one of them is lovely. She is a Belle, uh, played by Leah Sado. Um, she is a joyful creature who um, uh, inadvertently sets in train a series of events whereby... Uh, the family is further imperiled, uh, both the father and her. Um, she winds up in this odd uh, relationship with some beasty creature thingy, which is Vincent Cassell and some sort of weird cat drag thing. I don't know quite what the <laughs> creature actually is. It's a bit weird. Um,
0: it's actually Grumpy Cat. Grumpy Cat. Grumpy cat like has that. been photoshopped onto Vincent Cassell's body. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a speech <a> length <laughs> meme. <laughs> Yeah,
2: mm. memes are best in short, <laughs> small doses, aren't they? Uh, no more than a few an frames to the an average. Animated 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 pops. Yeah. yeah, and preferably not looping. In any look, um, uh, Yes, will we'll Beauty and Beast somehow find love? Uh, beast would like it, uh, Beauty's a little more reluctant. I mean, we all know how this is going to play out. Uh, if only this film had something of the poetry of the uh, Jean Cocteau film from 1946, which is uh, a timeless classic and full of extraordinary imagery not least all of these wonderful candles and candelabra in that film where human hands prop up these uh, flickering lights it's all beautiful sumptuous black and white and the beast is actually a rather charismatic character Vincent Cassel is completely lost behind the um, costume here I don't even know if it's actually a real costume there's so much CGI in this film that it's completely distancing and I, I got precious little enjoyment from this film i wanted it to end sooner than it did uh just from more or less the get-go um yeah even the comic relief and it was kind of dire and there's just a couple of odd little extra elements that didn't work for me either these weird puppy creature thingies i don't know what they were uh they didn't work um this film went straight to dvd here and i think that is an interesting thing because it's a big budget film uh, straight to DVD or straight to video back in the day was something that was generally, for variously, uh, an indicator of schlocky rubbishness and a kind of a badge of honour for people who love schlocky films. It's very odd to see a film with this bigger budget go straight to DVD in this day and age. It is Madman distributing it here, is it? Yes, it is. See, yeah. They normally even manage to smuggle uh, a week's release, at the very least, for things they release on DVD here. Uh, Cinema Nova or Acme. Someone will pick up many of their films, certainly for something with star power the likes of Vincent Cassel, Lea sedo who is a pretty big star now after Blue is the Warmest Colour. Uh, is she going to be in, a, in the next Bond film, maybe, I think? She's, she's going to be huge. She's a, a fabulous actress, and I think there are some other good people rounding out the cast, but I just thought this film was unspeakably dire and rubbish and dreadful.
1: I um, have an alternate IMDb plot description for this film wherein Alex from Plato's Cave has to come face-to-face with her ultimate personal battle, her love of Vincent Cassell versus her hate-on-for-terrible CGI. Yeah. I really struggled. I'm not anti-CGI for the sake of it, but this film really pushed me a little bit too far. Even the Cassell wasn't enough. Maybe I just don't need CGI Cassell. It was... I don't know, it was just a bit... Much. I'm, I'm bewildered by the, the career of Christoph Gans. Um, he really, like he said, he sort of vanished after Brotherhood of the Wolf, which was a, an incredible movie. I mean, everybody, there was so much buzz and so much excitement. It was such a successful film. Yeah, I, I'm one of the few people that liked the Silent Hill adaptation in 2006. I thought it was... Um, I mean, I, I like the game and I, I really like the film. He has done some work in video games. He also was the producer for Pascal Lugier, uh, who's linked quite closely with the New French Extremity. Uh, Lugier's debut film was a great horror film that's barely known called um, House of Voices in 2004. So he's been doing things but not, not, the, not the kind of things that you would have thought that something of the, uh, the scale of Brotherhood of the Wolf would have promised. This film doesn't make me any less confused about his career. I just This was a huge blockbuster in, in France. This was massive in France, which makes it even that point that you raised, Cerise, that it kind of really didn't get a kind of cinema run here. It was also very popular in Japan, which makes sense to me because it does have this very sort of digital, baroque, uh, very kind of gothic um, look to it that, that really sinks into a lot of the aesthetics that I imagine... Link closely, and I, and I say this hesitantly because I think it can often be a throwaway line, but certainly there's a certain digital aesthetic in Japanese, in some Japanese computer games that this film really reminded me of. So it made sense to me that this was popular in Japan, but I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe John Cocteau just raised my expectations of what to expect from a Beauty and the Beast adaptation. I found this um, actually quite dull more than anything else. And as a Vincent Cassel fan, it pains me to say that. Leah Sudeau as well. I mean, I, I loved her in Blue is the Warmest Colour. And just to see her... I mean, she was she was serviceable in this film, but it's a bodice ripper role. You know, it was all sort of very, yeah, sort of corsets and heaving chests. And that's not really what I... That's not what her performance in, in Blue is the Warmest Colour really promised that she would excel in. Um, maybe, maybe this, from a national cinema perspective, maybe for a kind of mainstream French audience, there's more going on in this film than I can see. Um, aside from Vincent Cassell of course. No, there's not. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I'm, I'm normally the, the anti. CGI guy of of the cave and I'm going to be a little bit of an apologist here but I'm not actually going to dispute any of the issues you've you've raised, (laughs) although I might be perhaps as vitriolic as as you, not Thomas Caldwell Um, Look, it's almost unfair and you you wonder why anyone would want to tackle Beauty and the Beast after Jean Cocteau, because it's such a masterpiece, it's such a distinct aesthetic You know, once you've made that tale in that way, how can you ever try and top that? Or why would you even want to try unless you're going to do something that departs the story in a substantial way or tries to to rewrite the story, or bring it into a contemporary context. And this is not George R.R. Martin's Beauty and the Beast going back a few years with Linda Hamilton. Do. Does anyone actually remember yeah. that oh, old the uh, TV
1: series? 80s Chestnut,
0: the Mighty Ron Perlman, which with the soft focus and the, and the you know Sarah Connor does does Bell. This film had moments that worked for me because the CGI was so flowery and so vivid and so baroque. I think is a really perfect way to describe it. That it has that that lack of almost the, well the magical quality that you associate with fairy tales. And I thought on that level, particularly the background visual effects worked for me in a way that um, another recent fairy tale or riff film um, Snow White and the Huntsman did, mm-hmm. which I actually thought was really quite underrated. I really worked, like that Yeah, too. and worked that aesthetic in, in a really interesting way, I thought. But where this the use of visual effects falls down, and I think in a, in a fatal manner, is the the Beast, the Vincent Cassell character. I don't think you can have a, a film that rests so strongly on that, that sexual dynamic between Belle and a Beast figure, where one of them you can't identify with them at all because, as I mentioned before, all I saw was... Grumpy Cat, like a, a totally out-of-place, photoshopped, badly visual effect character that had no sense of performance. Like, you've, you've taken a great performer in Vince Cassell... And you've just, like, rubbed out his face. And you've r- removed that performance. And by doing that, you take the, the core of the story out. And that was, the, I guess, the, the biggest part of frustration with this film. And we didn't get enough flashbacks of the Cassell to, to give us a sort of an emotional backstory that would draw us back into the, the present-day kind of relationship between him and Bell. It also feels like tonally it's being torn in two extreme directions one is the this feels like a film made for kids like those foppish eared gremlin dog creatures with the wide eyes were so bizarre and felt like something from not even a disney cartoon and then you have these moments of domestic violence and these sort of this the psychosexual content of the film really comes out and it's like well this isn't suddenly not for kids anymore and the way in which it kept oscillating between those two extremes felt like the film or Christoph Gans doesn't really know how to kind of set a narrative at a coherent level
2: it's just terrible look there's no chemistry between the the two people you most need chemistry between in a a tale like this and yeah it's a terrible waste of a tremendously charismatic actor and one who's so distinctive and then you, you remove everything that is distinctive about him and you're not left with that much except for some weird uh, plasticky-looking grumpy cat thing. And well, on, just... the,
1: on the back of Partisan that we talked about a few months ago, uh, the Australian film that Vincent Cassell is where, it's such a nuanced performance. I mean, we really saw... I mean, I, I think that that's one of his best films. Um, you know, we really saw him excel. And yeah. really, you know, the subtlety that, that I don't think that, that we generally tend to associate with him as a performer really comes to the fore. This is the opposite of that. I mean, this is just Vincent Cassell as a, as a name on a poster... Really yeah. and, and uh, rather than an actual presence,
2: and in partisan he got to, to really work that spectacular set of teeth he has, which would have come in tremendously useful, playing the beast you would have thought, but again it 's all just hidden and Oh, God, what a pointless film. Well,
0: he, he had such a beastly presence in Brotherhood and the Wolf. I mean, that was kind yeah. of one of his lead roles, and that was, well, there was CGI for that wolf-type creation, but also the use of CGI with prosthetics and those kind of great tangible elements. So I'm not sure whether Gans is another one of these directors who sort of disappeared up the up the CGI tree. I mean, was Silent Hill the one with Ryder Mitchell?
1: Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, see
0: I remember that being quite visually distinct, yes, but narratively pretty incoherent, mm-hmm. like many video game. Uh, and th- this seemed as I guess almost as inc- incoherent.
1: I would, I would agree with that. I think we should probably use this as a warning point as well, that there's a 2017 Disney Circle Jerk adaptation. Um, can we say Circle Jerk on radio? And, yep. and Disney <laughs> in the same sentence, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, coming out in 2017, which is apparently inspired by the original fairy tale, but also the um, very much the Disney animated film, and that's Emma Watson. There's already huge buzz about it. So perhaps we should hold off on our worst Beauty and the Beast ever, deck for a couple of more years.
0: Three, triple, oh. Now we're going to talk about uh, another film on Plato's Cave. This is a documentary. It's called I Am Big Bird, The Carol Spinney Story. This is actually a, a Kickstarter-funded documentary from filmmakers Dave LaMertina and Chad Chad. Chad N. Walker. <laughs> and am it, oh, sorry, it's quite like Chad. Chad's a great... In fact, there's a Chad in the next film that we're going to talk about, isn't there?
1: It's all coming together.
0: Oh, there we go. Hey, so Carol Spinney is probably one of the most famous people we have never really seen before. He's the man, he's the Muppeteer behind two of Sesame Street's most beloved characters. They certainly define my childhood. Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch... And Spinney is now 81 years old, and he comes across as a very kind, sensitive, soulful figure. And the documentary really works on, on two levels. On the one hand, it's about, I guess, shedding light on the lesser known of the Muppeteers. I mean, this is clear a guy who's been in the shadow of Jim Henson and Frank Oz, and has a very different type of, uh, of personality. But I think this documentary really worked for me because it, it broadens the context as, as the documentary goes on. It's not just about going back through his life and his, his time with Sesame Street, but looking at changes in the television industry over the last 40 Years and almost using Sesame Street as a case study for how children's television in particular has altered, and i sort of flag some of the some of the issues in which it has later. But I think this is a really well made uh, archival footage rich uh, film, and it, you know I think the the overriding sentiment here is there's a lot of love in this film, not just from an audience watching you get the sort of nostalgia kick of watching your childhood heroes and and being sort of stripped away and seeing the people beneath them. But this film is really a a testimony to the power of love, as cliche as that sounds, and I'm sort of gritting my teeth as I say it, because one of the central kind of aspects of this documentary is the love affair between Carol Spinney and his wife of some 40-odd years as well, and how that, as a couple, they've sort of held themselves together. Uh, I also think there's some really fascinating aspects here in terms of, That broader context I I mentioned earlier. In particular, the the way Big Bird became such a key figure and almost in that sort of Reagan era of the 1980s became the catalyst for bridging the culture between America and China. And I'd forgotten that that they had the Big Bird and Bob Hope specials where Big Bird goes to China and on the back of that and Carol Spinney's apparent love for, for, for China in that Bob Hope tour, Them going back and making a feature film for television, Big Bird in China, and I think it was Big Bird in Search of the Phoenix from memory. And I think this is, it's an interesting way in which it deals with politics and issues like the interpreter that they had on set was actually a spy working for the Chinese government was reporting back on all, on all of the activities of these, these strange Americans. But, look, I mean, this is the second of the Sesame Street Muppeteer, Puppeteer documentaries we've had in the last five years. The, the other one was Being Elmo, the Kevin Clash documentary. And for mine, particularly in light of what's happened to Kevin Clash, and we can come back to that, and the significance of Elmo, I think this documentary is certainly my favourite of the two.
1: I started off watching this, I have to admit, a little awkward with its heavy sentimentality. I mean, it's very sort of Oprah Winfrey-style music. It it doesn't pull its punches on the sentiment front. And then I stopped and I thought, am I criticising a documentary on Big Bird for being sentimental? Am I dead inside? Do I have no soul? (laughs) And once that hit me, I totally let go and I totally loved it. I mean, I grew up on Sesame Street and I think that that's a really crucial element of whether you will like this documentary or not. I think that if you didn't grow up with this, uh, it would be a very strange thing to watch. But, you know, it's part of my childhood memories, like you, Josh, I was so embedded in this show. Seeing things like... Seeing Susan and Don old was actually quite a shock to me. It was like seeing people in my family grow old. They're so familiar to me. Um, Mr. Hooper, going through Mr. Oh. Hooper dying again was really difficult. <laughs> I cried a lot in this film. I cried a, more than I'm comfortable admitting Speaking of crying, watching the Jim Henson Memorial uh, where Big Bird sang It's Not Easy Being Green and finished up saying thank you, Kermit. This is on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, don't look at it because it's <laughs> emotional. And my mum kept us home when Jim Henson died. We didn't have to go to school that day. I, I don't know whether saying that on radio is going to get my mother arrested. But <laughs> the um sure there's a statute department. of limitations. Uh-huh. But um, there's also, I mean, that being said, I mean, this... this is becoming my running uh, my running line. I think when we talk about documentaries, this isn't Errol Morris by any stretch. But there are quite a few surprise revelations in this film that are really dark. Uh, without giving away any spoilers, there were a few uh, th- a few things in this documentary that I found really shocking, like really emotionally quite upsetting. That that I didn't know about uh, that Big Bird was involved in these quite famous historical moments. This film is sentimental. Um, there is no two ways about that uh, at all. But I don't think that it's possible to really ch- challenge this idea of Spinney as a as a genius who deserves this kind of recognition. And I I'm, I'm, don't like throwing the word genius around, but I think that the film earns the right to it in a way. That all being said, and this goes back to what you were saying, Josh, it does confirm my suspicion that elmo is really nothing but a try-hard poser i'm just going to leave that over to you
2: drops mike wow <laughs> look thanks for that I, look, I haven't seen much of elmo's work and i haven't i, haven't, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: I prefer
2: his early stuff
1: <laughs> i was into early elmo <laughs>
2: yeah and i don't actually know much about uh i didn't see that elmo documentary either but there was a scandal was there or was there something you're obviously alluding to bring something the, bring the
0: dirt do you want me to, okay so Kevin, we actually talked about this many years ago on Plato's Cave um, with a lot of love and joy, I think, at the time. And then in 2012, Kevin Clash, who was the voice of, of Elmo and was quite um, had sort of taken over a number of the high-up roles within the Sesame Street organisation or um, yeah. children's television workshop. Yeah, In 2012, he resigned under allegations of sexual misconduct, allegations which, I, from what I've been able to gather, were later withdrawn or of which he's been acquitted, but he's no longer with the Sesame Street brand.
2: Right, and that was him, not Elmo, just to be clear. <laughs>
0: well. Well, oh, you know, Tickle Me Elmo, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, <we're>, Disney and... <laughs> the evening's taken a turn, hasn't <laughs> <Exactly. and then. laughs> it? Well, this,
2: as you say, Alex, this documentary is tremendously treacly sentimental, but there is some really dark stuff in there. There are matters of life and death and uh, global events and a few surprising revelations. I, too, got quite a, a shock seeing some of these people who were a big part of my childhood now many oh, 30 40 years older i could still very much recognize them but there, there was a, a bit of a shock something quite uncanny about that ex- experience uh, experience of suddenly seeing someone aged to that extent similarly I, I found uncanny also footage of characters i would never seen before uh spinney's pre big bird uh, there's footage there of him as other puppets seemingly quite well formed characters on other tv shows that predated Sesame Street, sometimes from the 60s. It's just all full of wacky antics. And I, I found that really weird because puppets that you haven't seen before and aren't familiar with are just innately weird. I'm sure that's going to come up in talking about Trilogy of Terror yet and a certain Zuni fetish doll. <laughs> I mean, dolls and puppets are freaky. So... <laughs>
1: And, We're getting to you know, the bottom of things tonight. Well, I'll play game.
2: Yeah. I mean, somehow we all found Big Bird lovable. Uh, but let's say something like that materialised in front of us in the street one day and we'd never seen this television show, I think we'd frankly be terrified, especially as a child, uh, when that thing looming hugely
0: over us because it's, it's about eight foot tall. It is. They make that strange assertion during the China sequence that the Chinese had never seen a puppet like this before and many people thought it was real. Oh, yeah. Culturally, yeah, I felt I, a little bit awkward I about paused that paused at that moment.
1: And also, I thought that was an unusual thing to say.
2: Mm. And there's this whole idea, too, that uh, Spinney had real personality clashes with um, some of the other key Muppet figures. I don't know that that was really explored no. adequately for my liking because I couldn't get a sense of his character at being being a, a great remove from the likes of Jim Henson. Frank Oz has seemed a bit pricklier, but Henson's all all love and warmth, and I, I got that from Spinney, too. So I'm trying to figure out where it could ever have been sour. It doesn't seem like it. There, there was that evil producer figure in there you did get a sense of that tension not evil but he was clearly very good at his job and brought the best out of him perhaps through that conflict but otherwise i I didn't get that
1: speaking of evil let's talk about one of my early role models mr grouch i loved i loved how they talked about oscar as a kind of flip side to big but i'd never honestly thought about that before but oscar when i was a kid Big Bird was like, you know, he was there and he was stable, but Oscar was the one that really thrilled me. Like, I remember being a child and not even being able to articulate it, but getting quite a perverse thrill. Not that kind of perverse, like a, a good, healthy child perverse. Wait, I saw you look at me like that, Ceres, <laughs> I know. But... look. <laughs> Like like what? Could you Crank describe it, for our it, listeners? <laughs> keep it for the trash can. Mm. I just I loved the idea of this character that was just cranky and and that's what defined him. Much much as I am today. Yeah.
0: <laughs> cranky, but as as Spinny explains, cranky with a heart of gold. Much to the chagrin of the producer, who said, "No, this guy is supposed to be a prick." You know, play him that play him nasty, and Spinny would kept pulling it back and showing that maybe Oscar the Grouch was just grouchy on the outside and and you know was the lovable rogue inside. Uh, I kind of yeah that dichotomy was really interesting and and but both oscar the grouch and big bird are fascinating from a production point of view because they're both solo characters they're they're puppeteered or muppeteered by one character and i thought that was fascinating in terms of the way in which the documentary used that to distinguish spinny as an outsider whereas henson and oz mostly um coordinated their their characters the left arm right arm sort of thing And and i thought that was fascinating and quite I was going to say Frank, Frank's Oz ad- admission, that it takes a certain element of aggression and narcissism in order to pull off a lead character. And I thought that was really fascinating and quite open of him to say, look, you know, I was forthright. I was a kind of a bastard. Jim and I would do that. And I got the sense even though Henson is this lovable genius that we all think of, he you do get a sense that he is the perfectionist too, that it is his show. And and Spinney clearly had a kind of, was, was racked with self-doubt when he opened in the show. And, and that leads to a number of sort of interesting uh, observations and confessions about his, I guess, his state of mind in those early years coming from such a kind of almost an amateur background and being thrust into this world of puppeteering gods like Jim Henson.
2: Gods, gods amongst men, amongst puppets. Uh, it's, uh, look, what's what next? Um, a, a doco on Snuffleup? I guess was he ever real? I don't. Know.
1: I, I would, I would kickstart the hell out of that. I want to, I want to get to the bottom of that.
2: I'm, I'm astonished. This documentary had to be kickstarted. What, really? What, no one wanted to produce this. They couldn't find funds. The, aren't the 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 children's television network aren't they flush anymore? Did they not want an inside job or? What? Well, they,
0: there was that interesting revelation towards the end about Big Bird's ongoing relevance in light of Mitt Romney's attempt to kill off Big Bird during the last election. Oh, that, was, that got wacky. Um, and I think maybe, that was, maybe PBS's funds have been cut to smithereens and they can't you know, outsource these types of documentaries. But you didn't get the sense that this is this is a documentary that, apart from Kevin Clash, hasn't been made with the utmost permi- uh, participation of all figures. I mean, Jim Henson's daughter, who runs I think the Henson Foundation now, or the, the company, is quite open and, and discusses you know, a lot and has clearly given over a lot of archival footage. So this is not an amateur-ish documentary by, by any stretch.
1: It's probably a topic for another show too and I think that the dynamics of Kickstarter funding for better or for worse is, is, is changing quite rapidly and that I think that it's shifting from a, well we can't get money anywhere else so we'll do a t- to Kickstarter to people choosing to do Kickstarters because of the independence that it affords them and I, I kind of got that feeling with this. It's like I'm sure that they could have got money elsewhere but there's something about that community funding I think that was in a way added an aspect of warmth to where this documentary was coming from I'm speculating here I don't know maybe maybe they did try and they couldn't but uh,
2: in a way that could be perfectly appropriate I suppose when Sesame Street began on American television PBS how did that people access PBS of course I caught Sesame Street on television in New Zealand growing up and we didn't pay for it but was it on what sort of Tele- a broadcasting model, was it accessed by the American I don't know people. much about
1: PBS in America. I think it's a, like you can, it is you a free can to donate. wear. It's free to wear, but I think you can donate money. There's
2: sort of that community vibe um, about yeah, that. They have telethons, and so absolutely. maybe it is a, a, a nice match then that there is a, a community
1: fundedness um, to this. That, that idea of a kind of uh, collective, which yeah. I think that the documentary, in a way, really goes to showing is, is how. Uh, Henson really kind of worked not just in terms of funding, but also just in terms of working with with other people.
0: And how those Halcyon days are almost over. I mean, that was the thing, just to bring it back sadly to to the Elmo issue. Elmo. The way they bring that up is Big Bird isn't front and centre now because Sesame Street is not a show for five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. It's a show for two-year-olds and three-year-olds and Elmo, the squeaky little Elmo, is there to appeal to that younger audience and as a result you get the sense that the show no longer deals with issues like death in the way that the Mr. Hooper episode... Oh, don't. Sorry.
1: I can't, I can't go back there. <laughs> and
0: I think that that's a little sad in terms of the way children's television is infantilizing children even further in, in some way. So I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's a number of interesting elements to this documentary.
2: Well, Sesame Street in its heyday too was uh, very much informed by the funk and the psychedelic era, but just the music back in the, mm, those that, days, too. The Pointer is,
1: Sisters, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The pinball. Pin. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, good yeah. stuff. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. We've talked beasts, beauties, big birds, and now let's talk Karen
1: Black with. Trilogy of Terror, Alex. Three Karen Blacks, well, four Karen Blacks technically. Look, the phrase "cult film" is thrown around pretty lightly these days, and I'm glad that we're looking at Trilogy of Terror because it's the real deal. We can unpack a lot of things around this particular film. Um, First of all, I guess it's there's there's three really important names. to mention when, when approaching trilogy of terror, first of all is the director, a guy called Dan, uh, Dan Curtis, who's famous for his Gothic horror TV soap opera, Dark Shadows. Tim uh, Tim Burton, of course, butchered a few years ago Dark Shadows in a very ordinary film adaptation. I can say that because Thomas isn't here. And Thomas <laughs> loves it. I know you love it, Thomas, and that's good. It's good that we ha- we agree to disagree. We have to first yes. with you, though. <laughs> Another uh, name that's really important here would be Richard Matheson. Now he wrote the three stories at each of the three segments it 's a trilogy is based on Um, Matheson was an author who did some really interesting script work. He wrote some of the best episodes of The Twilight Zone, for example. But I think his name most immediately is linked to stories that were adapted to feature films. So things like Stir of Echoes and probably most famously I Am Legend, which inspired the Vincent Price film The Last Man on Earth from 1964. The nutso Omega Man with my friend Charlton Heston from 1971. And of course, the incredibly strange I Am Legend with Will Smith from 2007.
0: The other other nutso.
1: The other. Oh, not so double plus not so finally of course is somebody i think that we'll be talking about a bit tonight is the late karen black herself um and i think for a lot of people this is the film that um if you were like me and caught it on tv when you were sort of a, a kid going into your teen years uh karen black became pretty much a, a i want to be this woman um she 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 owns it i mean she's just remarkable um On the back of the success of Trilogy of Terror, this was a TV movie that aired in 1975. Black to some degree degree felt that she got typecast in horror, Um, and the following year she worked with Dan Curtis again on a really excellent horror film that not many people know about called Burnt Offerings, with Betty Davis and Oliver Reed. But before all of this, she did some really diverse and impressive work. She was, of course, an easy writer, um, five easy pieces. She worked with directors like Alfred Hitchcock, Robert Altman and Francis Ford Coppola. Now, As the title suggests, uh, Trilogy of Terror is made up of three short stories, each named after characters played by Black herself. The first is called Julie, an oddly contemporary tale about sexual blackmail with a very dark twist in its tale. The second is called Millicent and Therese, a horror tale founded on sibling rivalry, with Black playing both the frumpy Millicent and the vampish Therese. The last story is probably the most famous, Amelia. This is the iconic one about Black getting terrorised in her apartment by a Zuni fetish doll that comes to life. Now, it would be a stretch to claim that these three stories are particularly progressive in terms of their core ideologies, but they're a hell of a lot of fun, and Black is funny. She's really funny, and there's so much joy and energy. If you've not seen these and you like a bit of camp horror, I think that they're pretty essential.
0: Yeah, it's hard to go past, isn't
1: it? Just so much fun.
0: I mean, I think for me, Amelia is the standout. And In fact, I saw Amelia going back a number of years as part of a university course, and it was the week on Freud and the mother.
1: Wow. Because
0: it opens with, and this is, I guess, a trope that the, the film explores, with a fairly repressed... Karen Black at the beginning of the, the short phoning her mother as she prepares for a date with a guy she's, well, she's going to cook dinner at her place um, on a night she normally reserves for dinner, her dinner date with her mother. So, you know, we're already getting the sexual repression is about to be unleashed, but she's also brought home the Zuni fetish doll. <laughs> I think we should all have a go at saying Zuni, Zuni, fetish, Zuni doll. fetish doll. Zuni fetish doll. That'll make the Radiothon show nice. Um, <laughs> And of course, it comes to life and starts attacking her, and it's the repressed sexuality. One interpretation, I guess, is the repressed sexuality unleashed in, in what is a very fun film, and, and is, in a, in a sense, ridiculously camp and also quite terrifying as well. There are moments in the way it, Curtis directs that sequence. With kind of the the doll running along the floor that reminded me of everything from the the kind of the hyperkinetic stuff of the evil dead sequences Mm. with Bruce Campbell's severed hand Mm. to gremlins and and critters. Child's Play. Exactly. Child's
1: Play owns a big debt to trilogy of terror. This was a
0: really influential film. And I like how it deals with the sexuality aspect. And I, I think it's interesting you raised the point about is it progressive? And I think you could read this in two quite extreme ways, but given how powerful her performances are, I think it's saying something quite well, I don't want to use the word radical for 70s, but something quite empowering.
1: I actually think that that runs through a lot of these stories, particularly the first one, which is called Julie, I think. Um, Watching it now, it actually, as I said, it struck me how contemporary it was in a way because it's um, a a teacher uh, goes on a date with a student. student, Chad. Chad. (laughs) I knew we'd come back to Chad. (laughs) Um, I don't think this is giving too much away. The the student drugs her and takes... uh, that it is implied that there is uh, a sexual assault. He takes photographs of her in a compromising position, and then he uses these photographs to blackmail her into further uh, encounters. Um, you know, this idea. So, you know, I mean, it's, this is pre-social media. Obviously, this is 1975. But there's some really interesting things going on about these kind of images as a kind of power tool um in, in sexual relationships, you know, that there's a kind of violence that is contained in these images. And and I think, yeah, in in the hands of um there's a wonderful ending to this. So that's actually one of I mean Amelia's the famous one, but I think Julie's the one that probably intrigues me the most um because I I, I think it's the most con- contemporary in a lot of ways. Definitely. Um there's a wonderful little twist in the tale of Julie that, that I, I always forget about, and it always makes me feel really great. Uh, I always really like how that one ends. Perhaps it's obvious, but I'm a simple woman.
0: Well, the way in which each of these... I mean, it's probably worth pointing out that while these were all based on Richard Matheson's short stories, the only one he adapted actually was Amelia for the screen in this, but they weren't oh, written... I didn't know that. They that weren't makes written sense. as part of a trilogy, so Curtis has actually arranged three non-related Matheson stories, but in a way that it feels completely coherent. I mean, a lot of those anthology films don't have this sense of coherence, and I think the presence of black in each of them adds to that, particularly when you have this strange play of this bifurcated image of, of woman, on the one hand, the repressed, innocent, naive, kind of almost spinster-type figure, and then the exaggerated, aggressive sexuality of of the other figure. In Each of these three films deal with that in, in very different ways. And I think there's some really... And in, in three different ways too. I think it's worth worth pointing out. And while the uh, Millicent and Therese probably signals its twist uh, quite overtly. Yep. Although should we mention that there's a cameo of the um, the guy who plays the psychiatrist in the second one is I think the commandant from the police academy films. You're a
1: strange man. I didn't <laughs> pick that up, but I, I salute your weirdo observations.
0: <laughs> yeah, these films are, ca- are cameo rich sometimes. They're pretty good. <laughs> But I thought there were some interesting aspects to that. I, it is a shame in, in hindsight, given what you mentioned about Black earlier and the director she'd worked with and the role she'd had, that she did get typecast to a degree after this.
1: I've, I'm, I want to talk about Karen Black because I yeah, just loved her. And if you don't know who she is, you've got, to, you've got to check out this crazy woman. She's just She looks amazing. I mean, she's just a strange-looking woman in a beautiful way. Yeah. So that came out a lot more dismissively than I thought. She's an unusual-looking Hollywood star. She's very beautiful, but she's not that... She's not that kind of um, Hollywood cut out look. There's something really engaging and, and unique about her. Now she died in two thousand and thirteen and I was going through her filmography and just the diversity of roles, even the, the not-really-big-name ones. Things like Capricorn One from 1977, where she plays um, Elliot Gould's love interest, also has O.J. Simpson, Simpson yeah. in that film. An amazing film about is the moon, moon landing I mean, faked fake or not. Yeah. It's an incredible film.
0: And a wonderful sequence involving a rattlesnake. I think the yeah, O.J. sequence that's one, the one. I saw that as a kid, it's fantastic. Uh, Sam
1: Watterson, a young, handsome yeah. Sam Watterson. I love that film. Uh, she's Daisy in the 1974 Robert Redford um, Great Gatsby. Um, another shamefully overlooked film that isn't talked about much. She's in uh, Last Horror Film with Joe Spinell. She's a cameo in that. Great film. Just straight and Again, I think this was a straight-to-video film, Out of the Dark, in 1988, which is perhaps not that amazing a film, but it's worthy of note because it was Divine's last film um, where he's not in drag. He's, he plays a kind of Jersey cop. Um, it's a really interesting film to see the energy between... Uh, black and and divine in this film uh she was of course i guess for most people a lot of younger people would know her from house of a thousand corpses the rob zombie film um from 2003 one of my favorite films with her and one of her later era ones that not many people know about uh, is a film called firecracker from 2005 with mike patton from faith no more um i mean she was yeah that was eight years before she passed away she kept working she kept doing stuff and she kept doing diverse stuff That's what I like about Karen Black, was that she never really, you know what I mean? I think that it was easy for a lot of people to say, well, she worked with these greats and then everything went downhill, but she still picked some really interesting roles, I think.
0: I only realised today that there was a sequel to Trilogy of Terror, To My Shame, in 1996, also directed by Dan Curtis. Is she in it? I'm, I'm not sure, actually.
1: I didn't know there was. Is it Trilogy of Terror 2? It Do is. I, dare, that feels like an uncreative name. I didn't... I'm didn't.
0: i a little disappointed. <laughs> Maybe we should hunt that down for a future show. I'm in. We are just about out of time. Uh, on tonight's show, we covered Beauty and the Beast. That's available on DVD and Blu-ray through Madman Entertainment. Also, I Am Big Bird, the Carol Spinney story. That opens exclusively at Cinema Nova in Carlton from this coming Thursday. And Trilogy of Terror is available on DVD. DVD through shock entertainment you've been listening to josh nelson alexandra Helen nicholas and cerise howard a massive thank you to janelle o'callaghan for saving our bacon and panelling for us tonight good night
2: you've been listening to a podcast from australia's best known
0: community radio station 3 triple 102.7 in melbourne for more podcasts information about upcoming events and our live stream please visit our website at rrr.org.au